Good morning, great men and women of God. Excited to share with you this morning. Um, as Kyle mentioned a, a moment ago, I, I am leaving to go on sabbatical in three weeks. Now, to clarify something, Kyle said, hey, we all were looking for a way to go on sabbatical with Thomas. Uh, he's referring to cards that you might write. I don't actually want any of you to go on sabbatical with me. No offense. Just want to make sure we're clear on that part. Uh, I am grateful for this opportunity. I'm so thankful for this church. Looking forward to going, looking forward to coming back. Just excited about this whole thing. And um, I don't know if you've ever prepared to leave somewhere and you're gonna be gone for a while. And so you're wanting to communicate what's important. I think about that like uh, when you maybe you have teenagers and it's gonna be the first time you're gonna leave all the teenagers home for maybe a couple days. And you make sure that you're clear on things. And you know you've raised them right. You've tried to share the truths with them. You, you know they're good and responsible. And you're like, but still no parties. Still, let me clarify what I mean by that. So I've been telling our staff how important it is that they don't have parties while I'm gone. I want them to be responsible. But I, it's this kind of weird thing where you, you keep asking yourself, have I communicated enough? And, and sometimes it, it slips into controlling and I started off with kind of this long list of things. Okay, here's what I want you to do if this situation arises, and if this situation arises, and if there is an alien invasion, this is what I want you to do. And I, I have all this stuff, and then I realized that's way too much. How can I simplify this? And it got me asking the question, what's most important for me this summer And when I think about our staff? And I kind of ran through this grid of truth, and I came up with this one thing. And so this one thing I've been sharing with our staff all summer, the number one thing that rises to the top for me is this. I keep telling our team, what's most important to remember this summer is to pursue God and our work in healthy and sustainable ways. That's what's important to me. I want to come back at the end of my sabbatical to a team that is, is been pursuing God, pursuing their work in healthy ways and sustainable ways. That's important to us at Pulpit Rock. We talk about that a lot. So uh, what, I, what I hope this will do is our, our team doesn't need help deciding between clearly good things and clearly bad things. It's not like, well, we're really torn. Should we do this sports camp to reach out to our community or should we rob a bank? We don't know which one it is. Well, no, it, it's like most of the decisions we face. I'm struggling with, here's what's important, but this might be more important. How do I know which one is more important, when, especially when there's some conflicting truths? So I really hope this is going to be a guiding principle for our team. I would love to find out that our team made some different decisions, even about things they had planned to do this summer, because they said, you know what, we're remembering this, and this rose to the top. And so we might have a, a, something planned that's really important, and we may say, you know, we're, we're going to kind of pause on that because we want to pursue this. Now, what I'm trying to model with this is what I'm calling the triage of truth. We all know what the word triage means. Triage means if I go over to Penrose and I'm sitting in the ER with a broken finger and I'm waiting for 45 minutes and you show up and your leg's been cut off, you go first, right? We would clearly go, hey, well, Thomas, you've been waiting. I mean, can you imagine if I was like, no, no, we're going to go by this system. I was here for 45 minutes. I'm going ahead of you. No. We would triage it. We would say, how are we going to really focus on what's most important? How are we going to prioritize? And I like to say that I think all of us practice truth triage. We all have this grid through which we evaluate and make decisions. What lines are we going to draw? Uh, where, where are we going to give in? What's worth fighting for? What's not worth fighting for? We all run through that grid. And if we're honest, we'll admit that all of us are bringing baggage to that grid. 
maybe the way that we were raised. There's something really important to you about the holidays because in your home it was like this. And then you marry someone and it's not important to them and you realize, how could they be so misguided and wrong? No, they're just looking at a different grid. Sometimes it's an experience we had, maybe it's where we grew up. And if we're really honest, we would admit that when we come to Scripture, when we come to the Bible, we are bringing baggage with us. The way we might translate a certain word, the way we might interpret meanings, maybe some of the ways we were taught, our religious backgrounds, all these things come into play on how we define and talk about truth. Even that truth I'm sharing with the staff this summer, hey, I want us to remember that what's important to us is to pursue God in our work in healthy and sustainable ways. That is a high value for me, but that comes out of 20 years of, of experiencing some things. Now, that's not the problem. It's not a problem that we all have truth grids through which we evaluate things. The problem comes when we begin to realize that everyone prioritizes truth differently. And we start to wonder, how could they have it so wrong? Kyle said this summer we're studying, or this April, sorry, we're, I'm already thinking summer. Uh, this, Kyle said this April we're studying what does it mean to live out this resurrection? We talked about the bigger story of that on Easter. And we're looking, like he said, at these different letters. I really like looking at short letters in the New Testament because A, they're short, but B, they seem to deal with very practical problems. Like last week with Philemon, what is, what is Onesimus and Philemon? How are they going to work this issue out? This week we're going to see another issue come up. In the letter of 2 John, we're going to find a man who is saying, look, I can't be there, and I can't give you all this list of things, so let me kind of sum up what my grid of truth would be. Let me give you some help, and when you encounter truth and you're trying to compare what's going on, I'm going to give you a way to triage truth. He's going to give it to them. I'm hoping this morning that you and I will admit, you know, I do have a grid of truth, and we'll begin to evaluate, is this the right grid? How can I adjust this? So turn with me to 2 John. You're going to find it right between 1 and 3 John. It's going to be right there. And it's going to be in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, please turn there. I'd love for you to do that. If you can get onto that app that we talked about, uh, you can go online and get that as well. Now, we said that each one of these letters is dealing with a practical issue. Here's the issue here. Here's what he's writing about in 2 John. In the few decades after the resurrection, People that said they follow Christ had a very clear call in their life, and it was to go announce to the world, our God reigns. And that means they wouldn't just do it in their hometown, but they would, they would travel. They would go to new cities. They would take this message. They were spreading the gospel like wildfire all over the empire, all over the land. Now, when they would come to a new city, though, they wouldn't just pop into a local hotel. In fact, hotels back then were called inns, and they were not where you wanted to stay. They were often flea-infested, they were seedy, they were houses of ill repute. You just didn't want to stay there. So what would they do? They would always look in a city for another Christ follower. They'd go up and they'd knock on the door and they'd say, hey, I heard you follow Christ. Yes, I do. Well, great. Well, my name is so-and-so. I'm traveling through town. Could I stay with you for a couple of days while I go out and teach and do this stuff? Oh, yes, I would love to have you do that. Thank you. That's how it worked. We see when we read through Paul's letters and, and through the book of Acts that he was often staying in people's homes. That's how it worked. Here's the problem. Along with these people that were going out and announcing the gospel that our God reigns, there were some other teachers also taking advantage of this time. They were out there with a different gospel. Their gospel was saying, well, you know, Jesus didn't really say what he said he said, and Jesus really wasn't who he said he was. 
and they're starting to spread that out. And so people were stuck with competing truths. Now here it is, here's their problem. They're saying on the one hand, I wanna follow Christ, and when I see the stories of what Christ did, he was always welcoming people and hospitable. I wanna be that, that's an important truth. On the other hand, I don't wanna spread fake news. I don't want to be out here helping support someone that's going to be sharing a different gospel and getting people confused. Which truth do I hold to? So John wrote a little letter and said, let me write a little letter, send it out, help you clarify that. What he's really doing, though, is giving them a way to triage truth. How are they going to handle competing truths? So here it is. We're going to start in verse 1, and let's see what he tells them. Verse 1. From the elder to the lady chosen by God and her children. Now, first off, you're like, well, who, who, wait, who's he talking about here? I just want to remind you that this is a dangerous time to identify as a follower of Christ, and often they would use code names. John's code name is the elder, and the lady chosen by God and her children, these are all the churches. This is a letter written to be handed out and passed along to all these churches to prepare them for the knock on the door. Then he says this, so I'm writing this to you all, whom I love in the truth, not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Okay, quick quiz. What word did you hear standing out to you several times in those few verses? Truth. Five times. Truth is a big deal to John. And John, just like us, has his own truth grid. And it's been shaped in his life by an incredibly powerful experience. One I can sum up in three words. He was there. He was there when Jesus said, follow me. He was there when Jesus told a storm to stop, and it did. He was there when Jesus announced, I am the truth. He was there when Jesus hung on a cross, and while he was dying, he looked at John and said, John, will you take care of my mom for me while I'm gone? He was there when Jesus was risen from the dead. And so truth became a very important thing to him, but his grid was shaped by this experience that he was there. And so because of this, I would say this, John triaged truth in terms of Jesus. That's how he viewed the world. The world was, well, here's Jesus, now let me look through that to see this world and evaluate things. So for John, truth was not a principle, it was a person. Truth is Jesus and Jesus was truth. In fact, if you want to kind of have some fun, anytime you're reading something that John wrote, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you might read the Gospel of John, you might read Revelation. When you read that, every time you see the word truth, just put the word Jesus in there. If we look back in verses 1 through 4, we'd say, he's saying, I love you in Jesus. To all those who know Jesus, because of Jesus that lives in us. Grace, mercy, and peace are with us in Jesus. It's given me great joy to know that some of your children are walking in Jesus. In fact, here's kind of a neat thing. Whenever you read the Gospel of John, so this is John's eyewitness account of what it was like to follow Jesus around for three years. Now, John is a part of that story. And there are several times in the Gospel where he has to talk about himself. He never once says, well, I. Instead, anytime he's talking about himself, he uses this phrase, the disciple that Jesus loved. John even saw his own identity through the lens of Jesus Christ. I'm John, 
And the most important thing about me is I'm someone that God loves, that Jesus loves. It's funny when you start doing this, when you start digging in and begin to realize that the, the books of the Bible were written by real humans and real people with real situations, and you begin to ask some questions like, well, wonder what's shaping their life. When you look at Paul, for example, we looked at him last week, Paul's kind of interesting because it seems like the most important filter through which Paul looks at things is the resurrection really happened. That's his go-to. He continues to harp on that. In fact, Paul actually says one time in a letter, and you know, if the resurrection didn't really happen, then we should be pitied more than anyone else because we're believing a lie. He actually says that Christianity is worthless without the resurrection. Now, why would Paul say something like that? Think about the most life-changing event he ever had, a literal change in his life. It changed his name. It changed his destiny. It's when he was walking down a road on to do the business he had, and all of a sudden, he had an encounter with a resurrected Jesus Christ. That changed everything for him. So, of course, the resurrection was valuable to him. And, of course, for John, Jesus is his filter. Now, there's two filters that we're going to see in this letter that, about Jesus that really help John triage truth. And whenever he would encounter someone or some teaching or some situation, he'd go back to these filters. So, again, what he's saying to these people is, look, you're going to have some things happen this summer. I can't carry you know, deal with all that stuff, but let me just give you this, these two filters. So we're going to look at verse 5 and see the first filter, okay? Here it is. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. And I ask that we, and he says three words, say it with me, love one another. What is love? This is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, Jesus' commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command was very simple, that you walk in love. I'd submit to you that the, the first filter for John was this, what Jesus said. What Jesus said was his filter. This is what he's doing here. He's reminding us of what Jesus said at the beginning, at the beginning of this deal. At the night that John sat across the table from Jesus Christ and they were eating, and he didn't know yet, but then in a few hours, Jesus would be hauled off, beaten, tortured, crucified, and would die. He didn't know that, but at that meal, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, hey, I want to give you a command. It's a new command. It replaces the old command. It's very simple to hear, but it's hard to do, and it's this, love one another. This is the new command that, that, that John heard him say. And so for John's point of view, the truth said this truth, love one another. Now how does loving one another, this is kind of an odd place to start with truth, right? How does loving one another help you triage truth? When the doc comes out the door, how, how, we'll look at the very next sentence in verse 7. John says, the reason I'm telling you about this command of Jesus is because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Now that, that kind of hangs me up a little bit because we're talking about truth, it's real clear, and all of a sudden he starts talking about love. Wouldn't you think that John would say, listen, there are many deceivers out there who are teaching bad things, so make sure you know your Bible. Make sure you've got your scriptures memorized. Make sure you have a statement of faith. In fact, I'd encourage you to print it out, put it on your door. When they knock on the door, you can have, go through that grid with them. He doesn't have that. He says, you know, there are many deceivers out there, so it's important that you walk in love. Huh. I think it's this. 
When someone tells us something that we're not sure is true, we need people in our life that we're in relationship with, that we've been practicing love with, who can help us navigate. We can't fight lies alone. This is why many conversations today don't seem to have much love. They don't exist in relationship. This is why social media fails as a way to discuss truth. There's no context. Nothing replaces sitting across from someone. This is why Jesus practiced truth at tables. It was one way that he loved. Here's just a, a pause question for you right now. Who are the people you can turn to when you're sorting through truth? When you're hearing something and you're trying to think about how to think about something, you're trying to prioritize some truths here, who can you turn to? Who are you in relationship with? This is why we do first table and second table at Pulper Rock. We're trying to get us connected. John is calling us to center our truth grids on Jesus and specifically what Jesus said about loving one another. If they were going to deal with deception, they had to be walking in love. Now, I'll admit, this hasn't always been at the top of my truth grid, but over the last few years, it's really kind of risen up here, this, this thought of that Jesus said, my new command is love one another. And I take that out to be a simple question. What does love require? And I'm finding that in my marriage, in my parenting, in my leadership, in, in my conversations with people who believe differently than I do, the question I keep seeing kind of as I'm in this conversation is, what does love require? What would be the most loving thing in this moment? And this has been one of the most helpful things, for example, in my marriage. There are so many times I'm having conversations with Jessica, and I'm clearly right. Like, you know that, right? It's, I'm clearly right. And I realize I can go down this path, but I'm going to triage truth a little bit. And I really feel like there's moments where God said, hey, you, you might be right. In fact, God often tells me, yeah, you are right, Thomas. I'm, I, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. But what's the most loving thing in this moment? And that question has pulled me back from the brink sometimes. Not enough, but sometimes. Sometimes asking that question means I'm going to say something that's very difficult to hear. Sometimes it means I'm not going to say anything. But it's a question that's been helping me. And I'll just say this, more than ever, people outside of Christian faith will tell you that love is no longer our calling card. It's critical that this command is at the top of our grids. Well, how do I know, though, what the most loving thing to do is in a conversation? Ah, that's a much bigger question. You know what that requires? Walking with Christ. It means I know what he's done. I see how he treated people. I speak with him. It requires a relationship again. It comes back to that. So what Jesus said was the first filter of his truth grid, but he has a second filter. We're going to see it here in verse 7. It's not what Jesus said. It's who Jesus was. Look at verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Wow, that escalated quickly. <laughs> all right, we were just talking about truth and love. Everybody's all hugging and stuff. And now we're talking about the antichrist. What's going on? Remember, we're a few decades out from the resurrection, and people are still trying to wrap their minds around what was really important about this guy, Jesus. Now, some people didn't, uh, were, were, were saying, you know, Jesus, what's important to remember is he was a good man. He was a good model. We should be more like him. 
For other people, they were saying things like, you know, well, Jesus, he, he, he was God, but he wasn't really ever a man. What, what, what probably happened was is that God came down in some kind of illusion or some kind of spiritual representation, and that's what we were seeing. That means that, that Jesus really never died on a cross. That was just God's illusion disappeared. Other people were trying to say, well, you know, maybe Jesus was just this good man, and for some reason God chose him, and, and God entered his life in a very powerful way, and then he was able to do all these amazing things, and then when he got on the cross, God said, oh, time to go, stepped out, and then that, that guy, Jesus, died. In any case, what they were saying that was most important about Jesus, the truth grid was, you know, he's a great example for us to follow. Good teacher, but what a kind person. You know, he, he sacrificed for his ideals. He died. I mean, that, what, a, what a great example. We should be more like him. That doesn't sound too bad. And yet, John says, yeah, they're, they're the Antichrist. Why is this issue of believing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that, that Jesus is God who actually came to this earth and took on human form and lived like us. Why is that so important when you're just trying to love people? Can't you just follow the example of Jesus and not believe this? Look back at something. Remember, John was there the night that Jesus, uh, night before Jesus died when he sat across the table and he gave them this new command. Let's look at it again. It's real close. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment, and it's this. Love one another. And then he says what? You can say it out loud. I promise that's the answer. You, you had it. He says, love one another. And then he says, what? Jesus never told us to love people. He told us, love people just as I have loved you. See, Jesus loved people not just in the way that he spoke and the stories that he told and the way that he would welcome outsiders. He loved us with his incarnation. That's a big word that means that God came down in the flesh and walked with us. He, he felt with us. He, he was tempted with us. He suffered with us. He understood what it meant. If God did not come in the flesh, then that means that God didn't die for us. And that means the resurrection becomes meaningless. But if Jesus was God in the flesh, that changes everything. It means we have a hope bigger than going to heaven or having some kind of spiritual afterlife. It means that we're going to have bodily life after our body dies, just like he did. And if we don't believe Jesus is God in the flesh, we can't love as he loved us because all we have is a much smaller story to share. Now, when you read this verse, it, it, it's... It, <laughs> I don't think that, that John is saying that these false teachers are the deceiver. He's not saying they are the antichrist. Rather, they're acting like deceivers. They're acting anti to everything Jesus taught. It's kind of like how I say that Bill Belichick is the devil. <laughs> I don't mean that he's actually Satan incarnate. I just mean that he stands against everything that's holy and good in this world. I'm just kidding, kind of. He's saying this. Now, I have tried to use this filter, who Jesus was in my life for years as a truth grid. 
The other one's newer to me. This one, though, this has been from the beginning. It is, it is such a helpful thing. Whenever you're wondering about a truth, whenever you're wondering about, is this a cult? Is this some kind of false religion? What's happening here? You can go back to the question, who was Jesus? I remember as a college student, I had a knock on my door, and it was a guy down the hall named Join. And Join was a, uh, with the Jehovah Witnesses. And he said, hey, I saw this verse on your door. Uh, you're a Christian. I, you follow Christ. I also follow Christ. Let's talk about that. Oh, okay. So he opened up that Gospel of John, turned to the very first chapter, and started showing me, hey, did you know that when, it, when you read here in English that Jesus was God, um, actually in the Greek it doesn't say that. And I was like, wow, I don't know any of that Greek stuff, join, and, and you do, I guess, so, so wow. And even though I didn't know the language, even though I didn't have all this preparation, I had been following Christ for a few years, and, and who Jesus was was pretty high on my radar. And I was able to say in that moment, hey, Join, I appreciate what you're sharing with me, but, but I believe Jesus was God. And I, I don't, I'm not going to pursue this line of conversation with you. I didn't let him sway me because I, that was at the top of my truth grid. For a couple of years in the city, uh, I was a part of a citywide gathering of pastors. We would get together. And as you can imagine, all kinds of pastors would, would want to meet. There's great opportunities to network and do some good things and, and be a part of what's going on in our city. And we always had to answer this question, though, but who, who, who gets to come in? Who gets to be a part of that? It's open to all pastors. Well, what if you're a pastor of this or that? Or maybe you bring some different beliefs in. And so we were struggling with, well, what, what do we do? And, and, and one of the ideas proposed by some pastors was we should have a long statement of faith. We should cover every detail and make sure that we've got it down. And that way, that would be our filter. But that was too much. That would exclude too many people. There are good-hearted, Christ-following pastors in the city, and we're going to disagree on a minor point. That's not the deal. So we came up with a simple sentence. And the sentence we had was this, to be a part of the merge, you have to agree that Jesus Christ is God and the only way to God. Period. That was our sentence. And, and, and we felt like that, that, really, that really kind of protected the walls, but also let a lot of people in. And that's, that's kind of what we landed on. That was our truth grid. Now in verse 8, John is going to bring both of these filters. So he said, hey, what Jesus said and who Jesus was. Now he's going to bring them together in verse 8. He's going to say this. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for. This is serious stuff. But that you may be rewarded fully. And then look at verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever does continue in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If someone does not continue in the teaching of Christ. Now, the way that's worded, it, it kind of feels like, well, is he talking about the teachings that Christ did? Or is he talking about the teachings about who Christ was? And the answer is, yes, both. The teaching that Christ gave and the teaching about Christ, what he said and who he was. He says, if they don't teach this, they don't have God. That's the grid that's on the other side of your door. Those two questions. What are they saying about who Jesus is? What are they saying about what Jesus said? And if they don't have that, they're not coming from God. They're not teaching truth. So watch out that you don't lose anything by following those guys. So let me just kind of summarize John's truth grid. I know, I know you're probably catching it, but I'll put it up here. John's truth grid centered around Jesus Christ. And specifically, what Jesus said, love one another, the new command, who Jesus was, God in the flesh. Now, how does he apply this to that specific example of the knock on the door? We're going to see that in just a second. And we're also going to talk about maybe how to begin to apply that in our life. But I wanted to give you a moment to reflect with God. 
I, I don't know that many of us would, would at first thought be thinking, yeah, I've got a truth grid, but I'd like you to wrestle with that idea that you and I both have truth grids that are shaped by different things. So I want to give you a couple questions to, to reflect on with God for a moment, and here they are. What grid do I use to triage truth? When you hear two competing truths, what, what, do, you, what do you do to, to determine which one is true? And then what has shaped your grid? Think about what has brought you to this point in life where this is how you see things. Let me give you a moment to, to interact with that, and then we'll come back and see what John ended with. I know those questions are much larger than a couple minutes, but I wanted to get you thinking about those because there might still sometimes be the thought, you know, I don't know that that's important. I mean, I, that maybe, maybe you might be thinking, you know, all truth is important to me and all truth is equally important to me. I think there's a little bit of a danger in not having a grid, of not having some way that you're prioritizing and triaging truth. It's where you don't have a grid, but you just kind of have this flat thing and say, everything I, I believe, I believe equally important and they're all here. One of the dangers there is how quick we become to dismiss people who disagree with us on some of those points. We start to call them deceiver or antichrist. Now, I don't know that, I, I would hope none of you have actually ever called someone antichrist. That's just not a good, don't, don't, just don't whip that out in casual conversation. But the tone is kind of there. We draw a circle, we define who's in and who's out based on how they deal with our truths. And so, uh, you know, I, I have some beliefs. I, I have a very strong belief that Jesus Christ is coming back. That is my hope. How is he coming back and when and what that looks like? I used to hold that here, and now I'm saying that's not as important to me as the fact that he is coming back. That's what I want to hold to. And I don't want to call you the Antichrist because you have a different opinion. John is trying to help people in the early days of living out the resurrection to have a grid. And he wants it to center on Jesus, what he said, who he was. Because for John, remember, truth was not a set of statements. Truth walked around. Truth spoke with him, and he wept with truth. He watched truth depart this life, and he saw truth return. This is one reason why I'm so thrilled in May. We're going to do a great series called Angry Jesus. Our team is leading this. It's going to be really helpful. And it's kind of centered on the thought that, that we often get angry about a lot of things that maybe we shouldn't be angry about, and we don't get angry about some things that maybe we should get angry about. And I'll throw out to you that I think the reason sometimes we're so angry in this world is because we have a truth grid, and something crossed our truth grid, and now we're upset because of the truth. And this is why it's so important to go back and say, but what did Jesus get angry about? What did Jesus get unangry about? 
if he's going to be the center of our truth grid, what does it look like to begin to shape our grid so it more models his and begin to, to get, do that? So that's going to happen in May. It's going to be helpful for us. But back to our text today, when John said, okay, these are the two truths. I'm going to triage truth through it. What did that actually look like? So here's his practical solution. You're going to get a knock on the door, someone saying, hi, I'm here to tell you about Jesus Christ. And they go, okay, well, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. If anyone comes to you and they don't bring the teaching of Christ, that we are to love one another, if they don't bring the teaching about Christ, he was God in the flesh, don't take them into your home or welcome them. Now, is John advocating that we should never eat with anyone, never have guests come into our house for dinner, never welcome someone into our church unless they first agree to all that we believe? If he is, then Jesus Christ owes us a huge apology Jesus primarily welcomed people who didn't believe what he was saying or who he was. John himself followed Jesus around for several years, not yet understanding he was God in the flesh. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about here, he says, you're gonna, if you welcome these people in, don't, then what you're doing is, if you put them up for the night, you're funding their ministry. If you let them eat with you, you're supporting what they're doing. You're making it easier for them to get that false truth out there, so don't even do that. Don't expose yourselves to their false teaching. Don't welcome them in your home and do that. So how would we apply that kind of principle for us today? Let me give you two examples, one for Pulpit Rock as a church and maybe one for you as an individual. How would we apply this kind of thought at Pulpit Rock? Well, we'd say this. You don't have to behave out of that new command to love one another, to belong here, but you do have to behave that way to lead here. And we're going to hold every one of our leaders to the standard, how are you living out the new command, love one another? doesn't matter how smart you are, how great of a teacher you are, how efficient of a volunteer you are. It doesn't matter. If you're not living out how we love one another, that's, that's going to be high up. We don't want you to lead. You don't have to believe Jesus was God to belong here. I actually know people that are here today that say, hey, I, I'm not really sure Jesus is God. Or one guy said, I don't even believe that Jesus is God. Okay, I'm so glad you're here. You're welcome here. But you have to believe Jesus is God to teach here. You're going to be an elder, pastor. You're going to teach a class. We teach Jesus was God in the flesh. That's how you begin to apply these things like that. See, here's the thing. What, what is true is this. I might not agree with you on every truth. That doesn't make you the deceiver. You may not agree with me on every truth. That doesn't make me the antichrist. I hope it doesn't make me the antichrist. I hope I don't find out one day, oh, I was all along? Oh, no one, let me point that out. We don't want to be afraid. That's my point. We don't want to be afraid to listen to people who disagree with uh, some of the things in our truth grids. But at the same time, we don't want to give a platform to any voice that doesn't hold to the teachings of Christ or the teachings about Christ. That's how we triage truth. Now, how much you apply this grid to your own life? I'd like to throw this out to you. I think it'd be worthwhile to identify what is your truth grid? Do you know what it is? Do you know what has shaped the way that you evaluate truth? Do you know what baggage you may have brought to it that might not even be helpful? What does it look like to begin to change that truth grid to align it more that Christ is in the center? 
For me, for example, I, I have more than two truths in my truth grid. I have a lot of truths I hold to and believe, but really those ones that are rising to the top is who Jesus is and what he said. Those are the top of my list. Now you might say, I don't even know where to start thinking about my truth, lit, le, truth grid. Let me give you three questions. I'm gonna put them up here. You can write them down. You can take a photo of them if you want. Um, I think these questions are helping me think more about my truth grid. Here's, what conversations threaten you the most? I find that when I start to think about that, it reveals some of the bias that I have in my life towards certain things. It begins to show me that Jesus really isn't the center of my grid. What topics do you feel the least confident in? The topics I don't feel confident in, that reveals some of my fears. I'm afraid of that topic. I'm afraid I don't know what to do with that. I'm afraid of that, and so I'm gonna maybe shy away from that while I'm making a truth decision. I won't talk about those topics because I'm not. And then who are the people you least want to talk to? Who's that group? Who's that person? And why is that? And what is that saying about the new command to love one another? And what's that saying about the reality that Jesus rose from the dead as God in the flesh? Those might be helpful questions for you, but I want to encourage you to begin thinking about what is my truth grid and what really is going to filter up to the top. And great men and women of God, as I close, I just want to say this, that you, you, you may have other passages that shape your truth grid, and that's okay as long as we realize that we're bringing some different things to the table, different baggage to bear, and as long as we're able to sit and show each other a little grace, just like Christ did. John's short little letter, it's a postcard really, calls us to wrestle with the realities of the resurrection, especially as it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ. So as I pray, let me ask this, how does the truth of Jesus Christ change the way you live? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't just tell us that you knew the way or that you knew the truth or that you knew what was important in life, but that you were the way, you were truth, you were life. What you said and who you were are important to us. Help us to carry those filters into the conversations and the situations where we are trying to navigate truth. It's so hard in this world, God, it's getting harder, it feels like. Would you anchor us on what's really important? In Christ's name, amen.